Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last week, we looked at the grittier side of the birth of Jesus, and as a sort of side note, I mentioned that uh, the word used for in in the nativity story is actually better translated as guest house, and that there is no innkeeper at all mentioned, not either the number of wise men. Uh, I didn't want to digress any further, but there's actually no mention of Mary riding on a donkey or anything else for that matter, although it makes a lot of sense that Mary wouldn't be able to make the 115-kilometer trip uh, any other way than riding on something in that very pregnant state that she was in. So it seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, It seems to be reasonable to expect that she was on uh, some kind of transportation like, like a little burrow. If you can absorb one more change to the usual script of the season, you may not know that one of the songs that we just sang um, was never intended to be a Christmas carol at all. It is one of the most exuberant carols that we sing, and we did so today. It is one of the most popular carols that we sing, and yet it is not actually a carol at all. In fact, though we sing and treat it this way, it is not even a song about Christmas at least not as its author, Isaac Watts, intended. He penned a massive collection of over 750 hymns, including When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and O God, Our Help in Ages Past. Watts read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, just like we do, and wrote his psalm book to explicitly point to the person and work of Christ. Watts clarified his method with these words, and I'll quote and you'll see them on the screen. Where the psalmist describes religion by the fear of God, I have often joined faith and love to it. Where he speaks of the pardon of sin through the mercies of God, I have added the merits of a Savior. Where he talks of sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God, where he promises abundance of wealth and honor and long life, I have changed some of these typical blessings for grace and glory and life eternal, which are brought to light by the gospel and promised in the New Testament. In 1719, Isaac Watts sat down to pen a poetic paraphrase of one of his favorite psalms, Psalm 98. He broke the psalm into two parts and summarized verses 4 through 9 under the name, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. Watts interpreted this psalm as a celebration of Jesus' role as king of both his church and the whole world. More than a century later, the second half of his poem was slightly adapted and set to music by an American named Lowell Mason, who borrowed much of the melody from a portion of Handel's Messiah. If you ever look at the small little notes underneath, you will have seen both Isaac Watts, Mason's, and Handel's name there under the credits for Joy to the World. That's what the song is, Joy to the World. The opening line of Joy to the World is sometimes sung incorrectly, or at least thought of incorrectly, as Joy to the World, the Lord has come. That is not what Watts wrote, nor what we sing here. He wrote, the Lord is come. Now, you have to go back to Old English, back in the 1700s, to understand that in those days, that was a future look. That wasn't a has, that wasn't like the Lord has come today. It is the Lord is coming. That was the intent. The Lord is coming. Watts was not describing a past event, the birth of Jesus, but rather looking forward with much anticipation 
to a future event, the return of Jesus to rule. The main point of Psalm 98, which Watts himself clearly understood, was not about the first coming of Jesus, but rather about his second coming. And that's precisely what he wrote the poem about, which we now sing. It speaks of Jesus' final coming to earth when the Savior reigns and when he rules the world with truth and grace. Watts longed for that glorious final day when the nations will prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Certainly we can look at the message in the song and see that it can beautifully be applied to Christ's appearance as a babe in Bethlehem. We must prepare room for him in our hearts and lives. And we spoke about that last week. This is a joyous occasion. As you hear and sing this beloved carol this season, think about the words. Yes, they apply to the Christmas story in that the Lord is come. We should rejoice, but let the lyrics point you further yet ahead to Jesus' second coming and the reason that Jesus came. And that's where I'd like to jump off this week as we look beyond the glitter of Christmas. If, the, if there's a word that I've used more than any other, and I suspect you have too, over this past year or two, it's the word change. A young man named John received a parrot as a gift at Christmas. The parrot had a bad attitude and even worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was crude, rude, obnoxious, or foul. John tried and tried to change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words, playing soft music and anything else he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. Finally, John was fed up and he yelled at the parrot. The parrot yelled back. John shook the parrot and the parrot got angrier and even ruder. John, in desperation, threw up his hands, grabbed the bird and put him in the freezer. For a few moments, the parrot squawked and kicked and screamed. Then suddenly there was total quiet. Not a peep was heard for over a minute. Fearing that he'd hurt the parrot, John quickly opened the door to the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched hand and said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. John was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude. As he was about to ask the parrot what had made such a dramatic change in his behavior, the bird continued. May I ask what the turkey did? In the past year, I dare say there's not one of us who hasn't had to chill out a bit and adapt to the changes around us, right? And again, this week, we find ourselves there again. There have been just too many, some big, some small, some really happy and others not so at all. Some expected other changes like lightning bolts out of a clear blue sky. But in the midst of this, isn't it comforting today to know that the message of Christmas remains unchanged and always will. Amen. It's a message of such greatness, such grandeur, such importance that we must absolutely be clear on it. It's a message that not only impacts your today, but also your tomorrows. So I ask you, do you get it? Do you have it? Have you seen it, heard it? Do you know it today?
Maybe you were too busy to notice that he's been watching and waiting for you. For us all to stop the frenzied baking, buying, trimming, wrapping, rushing, running out of money, out of breath, long enough to see and to hear and to know. What do you see this Christmas? Do you see what I see? What do you see when you look at the manger scene? I love this picture and caption. I like it because it's clever, but also because it makes us really look at what we are seeing, for there is more to this feeding trough than it first appears. It's a bed for a king. It's a king-sized bed. And yet there's even more, for over the scene of the lowly manger comes a shadow. A shadow of awesome beauty many will miss this Christmas season. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Even in this joyous moment, this wonderful birth, a shadow appears over the manger scene. Can you see it? It's the shadow of the cross. A shadow there for you and me. Do you see what I see? At first look, it looks ominous. But there is hope in the shadow of the cross. All because a child was born to eventually die. For you and for me. The dark shadows of despair and hopelessness need not haunt you any longer. For beyond the manger there's a savior who brings light and hope into our world. If all we see is a sweet baby in a manger, a little Lord Jesus, if you will, who remains in the cradle, then we've missed the most precious truth in all of history. Christ in human flesh came as an infant, remained not an infant. He came not to be born as miraculous, miraculous as that is, that God would choose to come to earth he came not to be born, but to eventually die. To bear the sins of humanity, that you and I might be reconciled to God. See not a gruesome, ugly shadow of death, but rather see a glorious, awesome shadow of life, of promise, of love, and of hope. Do you see what I see? Look closely and you will see not the babe, but a Savior hope for us all. Do you hear what I hear? One night long ago, above the little town of Bethlehem, some shepherds heard the sound. There was no internet provider. There was no iTunes, no 5G cell service. It was pure music, maybe music, from voices of heaven. Angels proclaim, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Did they say it? Did they sing it? It doesn't actually say. It just says it was proclaimed. We don't know actually how it was proclaimed. 
I know it was the sounds of joy that the shepherds heard. The shepherds, that is, not the people in the sleepy village below, sound asleep in their warm beds. They heard nothing. They slept through the most wondrous night in all of history, oblivious to the sounds of heaven close by. In the busyness of the Christmas season, above the din, the roar, the bells, the whistles, have you heard it? Have you paused long enough this December to listen? If you do, you will hear some heavenly kind of music from another world, music to warm your heart and enrich your life. Didn't the worship this morning already do that? Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear sounds of wonder? It's so easy to lose the sound of wonder at Christmas. We're too busy wondering what to give everyone on our list, how far the Christmas budget would stretch, or our pants for that matter, and what we'll eat accordingly. The shepherds' simple, uncluttered, uncluttered lives have no such concerns. They're caring for sheep. They're doing their job. In a moment's time, work turned to wonder for these weary wool watchers. They must have been awestruck at the splendor in the sky, glorious words that brought wonder to their hearts and their souls. They heard the angels. They heard the sounds. And these special moments, forever sealed in their hearts, carried them to Bethlehem. Their simple world had been invaded by heaven. They would never be the same again. Oh man, the wonder of it all. And down through the ages, the wonder has traveled now to us. And we pass it on to our children each time we read the story. Walk through the Advent season. Sing a carol. Keep the wonder of Christmas in your heart all year long. Its music will warm the dark corners of your life and light up the windows of your soul. Listen closely and let the wonder of it all fill you. Do you still hear the sounds of worship? It's easy to lose worship in the busyness of Christmas. We sing the seasonal carols and, the, and they attend the seasonal concerts and, and the words that we've heard so often become so familiar that we actually don't pay attention to them anymore. There's a turn of phrase that seems to grab me every year and I'm saving that for the end. But there's another one that's just impacted me in this last bit of our season here and that's the words in the song that you just heard. Infant and the infinite. Isn't that a great turn of phrase? Infant and infinite. Man, that just takes me to a whole place of wonder and the wonder of worship. Let's not make worship a ritual without heart, without soul. The shepherds' wonder, even their curiosity, turned quickly into worship when they saw the Christ child. Their hearts responded in a worship experience unlike any they'd ever known. I hope you have had this kind of worship experience when Christ truly became real for you, a personal savior for you. Pure worship results. You're an adoring, reverent, praiseful child of God. Worship is seeing God for who he really is and seeing ourselves for who we are and responding appropriately. Whenever we see God for who he really is, we have a much clearer picture of who we really are. 
We see our shortcomings. We see our sin and we fall on our knees before him in absolute adoration and worship. Ways of worship certainly differ among us, but one common thread weaves into the tapestry of praise we share. We love him. We adore him. He is our wonderful Savior and Lord. That's what worship is all about, by the way. Sincere giving to the King of Kings. It's not about what we get out of it at all. Don't let the sounds of the season bring a mechanical response. Keep it alive and vibrant, rejoicing in the God of creation who has, made, who has been made flesh among us. Adore him and let your heart and soul soar. Listen closely and you will hear his voice too. But not from the manger for he didn't stay there. He grew up as a child and then as a man. He lived, he suffered, he died, and he rose again so that he might say to each of us this, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We hear his call, we follow, and we find his promises to be true. The awesome baby in the manger becomes the awesome savior of my soul. God with me through the highs and lows of life. God with me through the good days and the bad days. God with me. The defeats and the victories. God with me. The successes and the failures. God with me. The sicknesses and the health. God with me. He calls. I respond. And I rest in him. It's up to you. It's your choice. Do you hear what I hear? This Christmas season and for all eternity, may the sound of heaven ring in your very soul. The Christmas carol asks the questions, question, do you know what I know? But here's a question for us all as we roll into 2022 and finish Christmas 2021. What do you know to be true these days? What's bolted down, locked tight, beyond a reasonable doubt in your heart and mind these days? I hope some answers are already flooding into your mind right now. I hope you know God is love. God's love is supremely demonstrated in bringing Christmas to be in the first place. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son at Christmas, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love is the gift of Jesus. The gift of grace no matter what we've done or haven't done. Do you know this today? That's why Jesus came to this earth to say I love you no matter what. That foundation forms in turn our ability to love one another. I hope you know that God is also holy. There are two ideas to holiness. The first is the idea of greatness, of majesty. One of the meanings of holiness is the idea of being set apart. God is apart from us. He's in a class all by himself. There's a profound difference between God and those he created. Holiness means that God is unique and superior in everything and in all things in his greatness. We look at this verse last week, God is holy. He's set apart. His ways are far beyond ours. The second aspect of holiness is the idea of purity. God is 
pure. God is good. He does what is right and never does what is wrong. God is unstained. He's just unstained by any sin. And he's uncompromising with sin. God does not bend a little every now and then when it comes to wrongdoing. God always acts in a righteous manner because his nature is holiness. He is both great and good. There's a person who used to greet me always when I'd run into him, whether it was at church or somewhere else, with this phrase, what do you know for sure, Lauren? What do you know for sure? It always catches me up for a second. And behind my eyes, I'm thinking, okay, God, first thing that comes to my mind, whatever it is, what do I know? What do I know for sure? And almost reflexively, the first thought that comes flooding into my mind is, I know with absolute surety that the God I serve is a good, good God. And it made me want to ask you too today, Do you know deep down, rock solid, for dead sure, that the God you worship, the God you follow, the God you serve is a good God? Theologians throughout the centuries have talked about the intrinsic or just inside, just part of who he is, the intrinsic goodness of God. Which means in everyday language that all the good that God does in this world and all the good he does in your life or in my life flows out of his basic character and nature of goodness. We all know people who are pleasant to be around once in a while. When they're in a good mood, when they're having a good day, they're good to be around. It's just that you have to walk on eggshells and duck sometimes as well. God forbid that you would cross their paths when they're in a bad mood, having bad days. God, on the other hand, is intrinsically good to his core. Catch him any hour of any day and rest assured you'll find him good. It's his nature to be good. It's his approach to every day, every person, every situation. It's to be good. Which is why in the creation account in the book of Genesis, it should come as no surprise to any of us that God creates a good universe. He does a really good job. The skies, the seas, the plants, the animals, all are good. And when he creates Adam and Eve, they're really, really good. Would anybody expect anything less from an intrinsically good God? But then you know from the story that God also does another good thing. He grants to us, we who are his crowning creation, this thing called free will. For he made us so that we could freely choose to follow him, to love and adore him. But Adam and Eve used that free will to make some terrible choices. They rebel against God. Soon after that, their children and grandchildren are falling into evil of every sort, thievery, adultery, murder. So what does an intrinsically good God do when his good creation chooses, in a way, to go bad? He could walk. He could walk away from the whole thing. He could call the whole thing off. But our intrinsically good God puts a good plan together in order to stem the flow of violence and evil in the world. He notices Noah, who finds his favor. He approaches a man named Abraham and he establishes a covenant of goodness with him. Read it sometime in Genesis 12 if you haven't already as as Pastor Ray was taking us through this. 
Abraham will become a blessing to his family and to others. And eventually the plan is that God's goodness and his favor and his blessing will spread throughout the whole world. God's plan is to overcome all this badness that crept into the system with his covenant of goodness. But then people in Abraham's lineage start to reject God's covenant of goodness, if, if you can believe it. They choose evil instead of good. They choose immorality over purity and greed over generosity, pride over humility, false gods over the true God. And there were consequences for the rejection of God's goodness, consequences for their lives and deceptive dealings with other people and other nations. At one time, a whole group of them were swept off and carried into captivity, and they felt terrible. It was a horrible thing. They felt repentant and remorseful, and they wondered deep down if they had irreparably broken God's covenant of goodness with them. Now we've done it. Now we've done it. They wondered if they've tapped out God's goodness tank so that it would never flow their way again. But again, God is intrinsically good. He sends Jeremiah the prophet to them, and Jeremiah reminds them that despite their foolishness, despite their violence, despite their covenant-breaking behavior, God is still going to uphold his end of the covenant because he is good. And the way he puts it in this passage in Jeremiah 33 is that God says, if someone can break God's covenant with the day, or if someone can break God's covenant with the night, then his covenant of goodness towards his people might be on shaky ground, a little vulnerable. But if no one can change the way the sun goes up and down at the beginning and the end of every day, then no one should worry about how committed God is to upholding his covenant of goodness with his followers. God's talking a little smack with the prophets and priests who begin to doubt his goodness. He goes, wait a minute. You're worried about my end of the goodness covenant? You've got to be kidding. You can worry about that the first time the sun doesn't rise or it doesn't set at the end of the day. You worry about it then. Until then, don't even think about it. But if that ever happens, don't you spend a minute worrying about whether or not I'm going to uphold my end of the goodness covenant. Even if you botch yours, I won't botch mine because I'm good to the core. And I keep my covenants. I keep every single promise. Some of you might come into the Christmas season and you're drowning. You've got complications and circumstances, medical issues and financial woes, relational garbage going on. This promise can be like a life ring to you today. If you grab hold of it, if you hang on to it, it comes right out of the goodness of God's core. Later on in the Psalms, King David writes poetry about the goodness of God. Just listen to just a little bit of it. In Psalm 31, he says, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. David's thinking of the goodness of God and he says, it's all stored up. It's like this huge storehouse, inexhaustible supply. It's all stacked up, even in every kind of goodness to last you a hundred lifetimes. Don't worry about God's goodness running out. It's stacked to the rafters, waiting for when you need the next expression of it. Psalm 34, 8 is one that I quote to people who are far from God and I'm trying to head them to faith a little bit. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. 
If you only knew how good God is and how he wants to be with you, it's part of his nature. He will be good to you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then at one point, David just throws up his hands and cries out in Psalm 116, what can I render to the Lord for all his goodness to me? Have you ever been in that situation where God has provided for you? He's answered a prayer. He's restored you. He's forgiven you. Where God's manifestation of goodness just kind of broke over you. You just went. That's it. How can God be so, so good? How can I respond to a God who's been that good to me? There are dozens of verses that David writes about the goodness of God in the Psalms. Do you know what David knows? That the God we worship and serve is a good, good God. Shortly after that, in the pages of Scripture, the prophets start with startling predictions about the coming of a good Messiah, God's Son. A Savior, Redeemer, who's going to demonstrate a kind of goodness that the world has never witnessed in the flesh ever. In Isaiah 9-6, the prophet Isaiah says, the first thing you're going to think about when you hear his name, and he will be called Wonderful. Let's just start right there. There's a wonderful Savior that's coming. It's just going to be wonderful. He's going to be wonderful. He's going to be a wise counselor. He's going to be powerful, mighty God. He's going to be eternal, everlasting Father. He's going to make peace and settle peace into people's hearts. He'll be called the Prince of Peace. And later in Isaiah 58, the prophet said this good Messiah who's coming is so intrinsically good that he will ask his followers to demonstrate part of their devotion to him by dedicating themselves to being good as well, to being good to the poor, being good to the oppressed, being good to the homeless, be good to the hungry and the orphaned and the widowed. In so doing, the Messiah will be honored and lifted up. And then he'll pour additional amounts of goodness into his followers' lives. Do you understand what a radical description of how God works that really is? Scroll through religious leaders throughout history. Most of them are quite content to soak up all the energy of their followers, all of the adoration, just soak it up. But this promised Messiah is going to redefine how people think of goodness in the age to come. Because he says he wants us to worship him, and yes, he wants us to love him, but one of the ways you can show it is when you love the ones whose plight his heart breaks over. And if you'll show goodness to them, he says it's like showing goodness to me. And he'll count that as you're doing it in his name, that you're doing it for him. It's an amazing and different way of how God defines worship and praise and goodness. And then, of course, the time for the arrival of Messiah comes, and the angels appear on the scene. Some of the first words that they say when they announce the arrival of Jesus is that they come bearing good news. This isn't a bad news announcement. This is good news. And not to just a few people, but to all the people. So this intrinsically good son of the intrinsically good God shows up on earth. And he really was good. Jesus was a good son when he was growing up. Scripture says he was a good student in his studies. We read that he was a good friend to his friends and he was a good mentor to his disciples. He was even good to his enemies. 
He was good to the poor and to those that were marginalized. He was good to the young and good to the old. He was good to the important people and he was good to the lepers and the outcasts. Jesus was an equal opportunity bestower of goodness. He spread the good news of forgiveness of sin. He described the kind of world we could all live in if goodness would just prevail. And then he died a really good death. I mean, it's one of the cruelest, most painful and humiliating ways that man has ever devised to put someone to death. It's awful, it's horrible. But it was good for us because it was a death that washed us clean. Jesus substituted himself for us and paid the extreme price we were due to pay for our disobedience, our walking away from God, our wrongdoing. It cleansed us, his death, of our sin. It wiped clean our slate if we believe in what he did. And beyond that, the scriptures talk about Jesus imputing, another fancy word, but if you just put inputting instead of imputing, you'll get the idea. Talk about Jesus inputting goodness into us so that our desperately depleted goodness accounts could be brought up to the standards that God would accept. It's the doctrine of imputation or inputting of righteousness. And it's deep and it's rich. God through Christ ascribes goodness to our depleted accounts to bring them up to full so that when God looks at us, he sees good people. Assigned and unearned righteousness given to us. And if all of that isn't good enough, well, his resurrection was a really good resurrection. Not many people have pulled that off in history. And he did a really cool ascension. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was a good ascension back into the heavens. And then in the book of Romans, the scriptures promise us, and you can believe this, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Can you get that? Do you know what Paul knows here? Even when you're going through really difficult times, God can take the trials and the tragedies that befall us and he can sovereignly orchestrate something good out of them. I hope you can be comforted as you hear these words from Paul that say God is going to take what you're going through right now and he's going to twist it and turn it and orchestrate something redemptive, something character building, something grace bestowing, something that will leave you a better man or a better woman than you were before. So often by hindsight, months actually, maybe even years later, I hear the very same people who thought what was happening to them was all bad, actually bearing witness to the fact that God reached down even to the pit of darkness and horrible pain they were in, and they can see that God did some good in them through it, more than they thought would ever be possible. And that's what an intrinsically good God does. He doesn't stop all the evil that comes our way. He doesn't stand between you and a bus if you walk out in front of it most of the time. But he can take what seems so hopeless and so full of despair, circumstances that just leave us wandering around, and out of it, he can bring good. That's God's commitment. He's so good that he'll work good in the most difficult circumstances of our lives. Isn't that good news at Christmas? That's how good he is. God is good to the core, good to the cross. And then there's the forward-looking promise in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and surely goodness 
Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Don't you love the imagery here? God's mercy is going to follow you around. God's goodness is going to follow you around. God's love is going to follow you around. It's the imagery of the second shadow. God's goodness is going to follow you around like your shadow in the afternoon sun. God's goodness is going to go wherever you go. It's never going to lag behind. It's never going to leave. God's goodness will follow you like your shadow all the days of your life. And then the verse ends by saying that when your life ends, and all of our lives are going to end, I hope that's not a surprise to anyone, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where God ratchets up the goodness level and he keeps us in this perfect condition, this perfect state forever. Do you know that heaven is the ultimate expression of an intrinsically good God? When do you know the fullness of the goodness of God? Well, frankly, in heaven. When you see it unabated and untainted by evil that exists in the world, heaven is the ultimate expression of an intrinsically good God. And that's what is waiting for those of us who have trusted in Jesus. Goodness and mercy all the days of our lives, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And then heaven at the end. Enjoy goodness and mercy this wonderful Christmas season with good food, good friends, good family to boot. Invite Jesus along to all your celebrations. And they'll be even that much better. But in the middle of it all, let's take time for some private moments of quiet worship that we might see and hear and know that the baby in the manger on that holy night is Christ the Lord, our Savior, God with us.